All right, we are back. We're talking about the Mythbusters boys, Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage. They are coming. They're going to come to the Community Center Theater in Sacramento. That's at 1301 L Street on January 9th. We hope we'll be able to score an interview with those boys because they do a pretty damn entertaining show. But to note of the Sacramento Bee a few days back, zany experiments testing scientific theories in a real-world setting have earned the TV show Mythbusters a devoted following. But a stunt gone awry met with an unhappy audience when an errant cannonball (laughs) went shooting through a Bay Area family's bedroom. Sheriff's deputies are still measuring how exactly the cannonball flew from a bomb range in the rolling hills flanking a Dublin neighborhood and rocketed into the front door of a home and through its master bedroom before landing in a neighbor's parked minivan. The cannonball traveled about 700 yards. The article noted that producers of the Discovery Channel show fired the cannonball Tuesday as they filmed an episode testing whether other types of projectiles shot from a cannon would pick up the same speed and have the same impact as the steel ball. Instead of hitting a string of water-filled garbage cans, however, the cannonball passed over the barrels, crashed through a protective cinder block wall, and careened off the hill behind it, said Alameda County Sheriff's Department spokesman J.D. Nelson. All I can say is, boys, we still love you, but be careful. In the wake of a couple of articles in Sacramento Bee about copper thefts and how they're causing, uh, you know, playgrounds to go dark because they've ripped the copper wiring out, knuckleheads have to sell... I had a note that a person named Autumn Stevens wrote the Sacramento Bee to say, regarding copper crime wave spreads, we had copper removed from a building two years ago and the situation seems to be getting worse. Instead of making the taxpayers pay the bill, why not a simple solution? Don't pay recycling facilities unless a valid party dropped the copper off. What about requiring a photo ID and addresses of the party dropping off copper? It's simple. Recycling places that accept stolen copper are as much criminals as the thieves. All we need is common sense. Hard to argue with that. And although we were praising to the skies the Week magazine, as we often do in this program because of the fact that it's so comprehensive and it's written so succinctly, I did have a moment of doubt here uh, a couple of issues ago when in their talking points section, they had two rather peculiar items for discussion. The first was titled Climate Gate 2.0, Scientists as Advocates. And as the magazine often does, unfortunately, it quoted nationalreview.com saying, once again, climate scientists have been caught behaving badly. On the eve of a new global climate change summit, an anonymous hacker last week released another 5,000 emails from the massive trove pilfered two years ago from the accounts of top climate scientists. The revelations this time are just as shocking as those of the first. I'm kind of disappointed that the uh, Week magazine took this issue up, but was somewhat encouraged by the response from Steve Zwick and Forbes.com, saying, ah, the wingnuts are at it again. Climate change deniers have selectively edited this old batch of stolen emails to portray scientists in the worst possible light. But if you read more than sentence-long snippets, these emails reveal climatologists arguing over details and obsessing to get things right. The government scientist who worried that a climate study was too political, for example, was listened to, and the final draft had a much more neutral tone. And writing in Time.com, Brian Walsh said, Let's not forget that the first climate gate triggered multiple intensive studies of the emails and of climate change data. These analyses all concluded that climate change is real, and that the furor over the gossipy and poorly worded emails was nothing more than a sideshow. We agree in this case it seems to be much ado about nothing. 
And apparently a wake of some cracks made by Newt Gingrich. The other thing in the talking points was child labor. Should kids be allowed to work? Evidently, Mr. Gingrich suggested uh, a couple weeks back that it would benefit poor kids if they could take on jobs now reserved for adults, such as flipping burgers or serving as janitors in their own schools. They would have cash, they would have pride in the schools, they'd begin the process of rising, said Gingrich. This caused Amy Davidson to write in the NewYorker.com, If schools begin to employ nine-year-old janitors, how can we ask American corporations or our trading partners not to use child labor in cotton fields or chocolate plantations? Of course, we've talked about this in this program before. I I don't know what it is that college students can do now to earn, uh, earn their living over the summer like yours truly did when he was a college student, which was to go work in a cannery for, I guess it was from high school through college, eight summers in a row. So lest we get too worked up over arguing over whether 16-year-olds should be able to hold jobs flipping burgers, how about 19-year-olds having jobs? And, and by that, I don't mean 19-year-olds in China. I kind of suspect that a thousand years in the future, they're going to look back uh, on this era where uh, corporate tycoons and the Chinese Communist Party collaborated to basically move our entire industrial base across the Pacific as sort of a... Some of those moves the Roman emperors made back in about the 3rd century that sort of directly led to the whole place collapsing not long afterwards. Just a suspicion on my part. Of course, I hate to, I really, actually really hate to agree with anything written in nationalreview.com, but I I must partially uh, agree with comments by Kevin Williamson, who said, it's the liberal elites who have no respect for manual labor. That part I don't agree with, but he goes on to say, they insist that every kid should attend college, even though about 50% of students are hardly destined to become Ezra Pound scholars and get no practical benefit from four years at mediocre U. You know, was it President Obama? I think it was a year or two ago talking about how in America of the future, everyone should be able to get a college education. Well, not everybody wants or needs a college education. And given some of the things we're supposedly educating people about, one has to ask, why bother? Of course, this combination of things, wanting to educate everybody and having no jobs available, reminds me of the time I was in Burma a couple decades back, and uh, you would see things like pedicab drivers with PhDs in physics. Well, I'm not sure it was a PhD, but uh, let's say a degree in physics pedaling a cab, because that actually was a very good job in the Burmese economy. We asked some months back on this program if anybody could tell us where it was that the um, canning industry moved to. There used to be plants all over Northern California. Davis had a Hunt Wesson plant that yours truly worked in for, for six summers. I drove out and took a look at the site a year or two ago. It is a giant cement slab. There is nothing, I mean nothing left of what was once a large facility a facility that employed thousands of people every summer. Gone. Vanished. Anybody know where it went? Please let me know. Drop a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, something else in the week. This comment by Lady Gaga about her bad romances. What's that about? I'm just enforcing the no Lady Gaga policy you installed several years ago. Oh, you're right, I did. God, what was I thinking? All right, let's talk about another disaster instead. Apparently in Yamaguchi, Japan, I just, I don't know. Sometimes in this show, we just sort of jump from topic to topic. I think you've noticed that, dear listener. But who can resist the following item? 
eight Ferraris, three Mercedeses, and a Lamborghini were totaled this week in what's being called the most expensive car crash ever. Luxury car enthusiasts were driving in a convoy from Kyushu to Hiroshima when one of the Ferrari drivers lost control while switching lanes at high speed on a wet highway. He skidded into, unco- he skidded into oncoming traffic and the cars behind him began slamming into one another, injuring 10 people. A Nissan, a Nissan Skyline and Toyota Prius were also involved in the crash. The damage is estimated at more than $4 million dollars said Mitsuyoshi Isajima of Yamaguchi Prefecture's traffic police, it was a gathering of narcissists. We would add, apparently, bad driving narcissists. And if you are thinking about getting a Ferrari or Lamborghini, we would say, please, go to driving school. Unless perhaps your name is Alec Baldwin. To Alec, we just say, have at it, pal. And that reminds me, Mr. Merlin, did I, did I use that quote about Newt, Newt Gingrich, Defining Marriage? In case I didn't, someone sent an email a few weeks back uh, with a quote that said, Newt Gingrich defines marriage as a union between a man and a woman without cancer. Just wanted to make sure I I got that one in in case we missed it. Since I guess we're talking about things we can't help but mention, uh, or at least articles that are irresistible, how about this piece? And this we're quoting from the Health and Science section of the week. It's often said that men think about sex once every seven seconds. In reality, says a new study, men daydream about sex far less frequently than that adage would suggest, although still about twice as often as women. Ohio State researchers gave 120 men aged 18 to 25 a tally device and asked them to click it every time they thought about sex. If it had been every seven seconds, the study subjects would have hit the clicker 8,000 times a day, leaving them little time to get any work done. Instead, the medium count per man was 19 per day. Even the study subject who thought about sex the most, with 388 clicks in a single day, still fell far short of the stereotype. A separate group of women registered a median of 10 sexual thoughts per day. Study author Terry Fisher told USA Today, It's amazing the way people will spout off these fake statistics that men think about sex nearly constantly and so much more often than women do. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. And no, Ms. Vermillion, that's not because we're only using 10% of our brain, another meaningless statistic that's thrown out. Along with, oh, it's a full moon. All right, I don't want to make it all amusing stories. How about this rather sad item? From the Washington Post, Dateline Washington. President Barack Obama last Thursday defended his administration's decision to block unrestricted sales of the morning-after pill as a common-sense parenting choice even as women's rights advocates condemned it as a cynical move that could provoke a political backlash against the president next year. The administration, according to several Democratic allies, took a calculated risk in making the decision to overrule the Food and Drug Administration, which had concluded that the contraceptive Plan B should be made available to people of all ages directly off drugstore and supermarket shelves without a prescription. Though the decision announced last Wednesday by Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius angered women's groups, some of the president's allies said that allowing the FDA ruling to stand could potentially have been more politically damaging for Obama if he were portrayed as giving teenage girls unfettered access to the morning-after pill. I was quite stunned by this story. Uh, According to FDA administration officials, they... This was the first time the Department of Health and Human Services had overruled the agency. Generally, and and hopefully, 
politicians let, uh, you know, doctors and health officials make such decisions and go forward with them. Of course, we all know that politics is involved in just about anything that comes out of Washington, but this one really makes me sad. What was described as a rare public split, FDA Administrator Margaret Hamburg said her conclusion that the drug could be used safely by women of all ages was nullified by Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. She said there is adequate and reasonable, well-supported, and science-based evidence that Plan B One Step is safe and effective and should be approved for non-prescription use for all females of child-bearing potential. Susan Wood of George Washington University, who resigned from the FDA in 2005 because of delays by the George W. Bush administration in relaxing restrictions on Plan B, said she was beyond stunned by the decision. said there is no rationale that can justify HHS reaching in and overturning the FDA on the decision about the safe and effective contraception. I never thought I'd see this happen again. Politics. Article in the Post noted that this decision came as the administration is trying to defuse rising tensions with the Catholic Church over several issues, including a proposed mandate that private insurers provide women with contraceptives for free and federal denial of an anti-human trafficking grant to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Gotta say, in this correspondent's opinion, it's amazingly lame that Catholic Healthcare West, for example, is allowed to go and buy rural hospitals all over California, And then, once in place, deny contraception or even birth control pills to people who seek them. Let's get off that topic. How about this one? We mentioned on the show some weeks back there's a study that's showing that if you just gave up burgers one day a week, it would have a very healthy effect on uh, CO2 emissions. Well, New Scientist, November 19th issue, did some math on this. And cited a study done by the Australian National University in Canberra that noted that the average person consumes 100 grams of meat a day, which is about a burger. The rich eat 10 times more than the poor. In other words, some people get 10 burgers a day, while others get none. Colin Butler, researcher, showed that if every person in the world ate 50 grams of red meat and 40 grams of white meat per day by 2050, greenhouse gas emissions from meat production would stabilize at 2005 levels. Certainly something to think about. In fact, this correspondent's probably going to try and give up uh, meat one day a week and see how that goes. It's not that much of a sacrifice. I do know, however, that as a fallen Catholic, it will not be a meatless Friday. I remember these many years later, coming home on a Friday afternoon and craving a burger and having my grandmother fry up fish and just not being happy about it. By the way, did you know that it was a mortal sin for, I believe, a few centuries to eat meat on Friday if you're a Catholic. If my memory serves me correctly, sometime in the 1960s, it went from a mortal sin, meaning you were guaranteed to burn in hell for all eternity, to no penalty. You just have to feel for that guy right now whose soul is in hell, burning for all eternity because he ate that burger the week before it went penalty-free. Man, that doesn't seem fair. All right, one more thing before we go to break here. How about the article in the News and Review by Cosmo Garvin about Ira Glass? In fact, Cosmo sat down and asked uh, Ira Glass a few questions. Cosmo did note that in the 16 years that the show's been on the air, Glass has proven that you can tell an interesting story about anything. Terrorism, the mortgage crisis, even middle school. 
And I would say, Cosmo, we certainly think that's true on this program because <laughs> we don't really have a very set agenda. I would say that when Ira Glass is on his game, there is nobody better. I'm just sorry I was out of town on December 3rd and couldn't attend that event up in Grass Valley. But anyway, to quote from the article, Cosmo asked, I wonder what you make of the political attacks on public broadcasting. Glass said, I think it's complicated. When you look at what Juan Williams was saying, I don't think he should have been fired. When people on the right were upset about that, they were right to be. That was a screw-up. It was wrong in every way. But I feel that's a weird, isolated case. It says nothing about what we're doing on the air every week. Asked, does that political stuff end up hurting public radio? Glass said, possibly. I think it's a very serious problem. Weirdly, it might not hurt our audience size or funding. It might just hurt the perception of public radio in a way that would taint it. There's a Pew poll about trust. Public radio every year for a decade grew in people's trust, even while newspapers fell and networks fell and everything else fell. But public radio just grew and grew. I feel like the political attacks could start to wear that down. You know the president's not a Muslim, but at one point, 40-50% of people told pollsters they thought he was. doesn't matter what the truth is in that situation. It matters how you're perceived. I feel like the problem is public radio has no counter-strategy against the strategy that's being used against them. So yes, I'm scared. Well, we'll say one thing about Ira Glass. We've at least used his, his bit on failure on this show, I think, on three different Thanksgivings. Hell, we might even use it again next year. It's awfully good. And yes, we are experiencing some PJ about uh, his being on The Simpsons. That would be professional jealousy. Actually, I'm kidding. There is very little we're jealous of on this program. On that note, let's take a short break. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. Thank you. 